I'm Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob? If this is your first time joining us, together we're watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week, we're discussing Season 1, Episode 4. This episode is titled New Amsterdam, and it was written by Lisa Albert and directed by Tim Hunter. This episode originally aired on August 9th, 2007. That week, the hit movies were Rush Hour 3, followed by The Bourne Ultimatum and The Simpsons Movie. Stardust was making its way at number four, still one of my favorites. Uh, hit music, or sorry, the hit song uh, that week was Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston, a song I do not remember despite looking it up. You're I, I very def- lucky because it's been stuck in my head since I started these notes. <laughs> yeah. When, when I was looking ahead last week to what the song would be be this week, I had totally forgotten about it. Listen to it again. It gets stuck in your head. Also, doesn't really hold up. Um, the mm-hmm. beat does. Lyrics, not the best. Um, no. This week on Mad Men, Helen asks Betty a favor. Don fires people person Pete, but Cooper of Sterling Cooper covers for him. All right. So Elizabeth Moss's Peggy Olson was only in one scene this week, but I kind of wanted to start there and talk about it. So what were your responses to the one scene that Peggy is in? And just to kind of refresh everyone's memory, it's the scene in which um, Trudy Campbell, who we meet this episode, um, stops by the office to meet Pete, and then Trudy is introduced to Don, and Peggy is walking across the floor with, with Don, walking across the office. So she's there for that interaction and doesn't say a word. She doesn't say a word out loud. She's certain, certainly saying a lot with her eyes, because she's that brilliant of an actor. Uh, in general, I just found it to be a sort of tense scene, not in your typical thriller kind of way, just uh, in the moment, you know, the quick exchange glances, I thought you could see a lot of uh, a lot of like breath holding and people going, what's going to happen next? Who's going to say what? Yeah, I thought Pete very obviously made it a point to not introduce her. And I felt like if I was Trudy, I would be like, um, excuse me. Why are we doing introductions and not with this girl who's very obviously in this conversation, but you just decided to act like she wasn't a real person, but also stare her directly in the face for an inordinate amount of time? (laughs) I don't, I mean, part of it is that I don't think Trudy is a very uh, skeptical or suspicious person. Uh, As we see later, she Mm -hmm. tends to get her way in things. So I don't think it really comes across to her that, hey... Um, there might be something going on here that I'm not aware of. Right. How about you, Matt? Who waves first? Is it Peggy that waves when her and Don leave? Or is it yeah, yeah. Trudy? Yeah, well, okay. and she doesn't... Yeah, Peggy actually leaves before Don leaves. Right, Like, that's she right. just kind of walks away from the conversation. But yeah, she does give a wave before she goes. Yeah, and like, Trudy just kind of like, oh, bye, like, waves back. Like, yeah. not... Yeah. No, because I mean, we may just be in this sort of, in this sort of context. Peggy is just a help. She's really mm-hmm. not that important. She's yeah. kind of interchangeable. She's not even Pete's secretary. So I mean, she she's not really a person yeah. that I need to get to know. She's not even really a person. 
Yeah, and and I think it's worth noting too, as we kind of mentioned her her name before, that this is the first episode of Mad Men that we've that we've watched so far that was written by a woman, and I just mm-hmm. that that feeling of like how Peggy almost feels like not totally invisible because like Pete's definitely they have that look where it's like shutting her down preemptively, but kind of the just there but not there. Um, I don't know. If without Moss's performance, a but if it was written by maybe some of the other writers, I don't know if it would would have stood out to me as much, right? Just in how kind of authentic it felt. So, yeah, with Elizabeth Moss, you can't really ignore her presence, so it tends to be more noticeable when she's not given something to do. Yeah, for sure. So Pete and Trudy, we finally meet Trudy Campbell. Um. They're getting an apartment. They're looking. That was where there's their, their surprise lunch break. And they need help with the mortgage. So Pete goes to his parents. What did we think it about... It goes real well. Yeah, like really well, right? So what did we think about Pete's exchange with his, his dad and his mom when he, he goes there over for, for a cocktail and asks for, for mortgage help? Yeah, this scene made me feel sympathetic towards Pete. So that's something that I never thought would happen. But I guess, you know... Pete's not his well I mean I'm gonna lump his mom in with this too because she like I guess I don't want to say like allows but his parents seem to be functioning as a unit but his dad is just horrible to him and I really felt for him and I'm kind of bummed about that but (laughs) (laughs) she's definitely an enabler in her passivity even though I think she makes like at one point a half-hearted half-hearted attempt to be like oh no it's like no we're not just being terrible to you we don't just hate you personally things are fine but at some point she literally just stops and leaves the room and exits the conversation completely without any real preamble um i think it's something I, i do think she just enables that kind of behavior um maybe because she is complicit in all of it and agrees or maybe she's just used to she knows how it would go anyways if she did try to intervene. It's going to go badly and then I'm going to get my I'm going to get crushed in all of this. So it's just better if I just go. Yeah, it it's like she knows how it will go like you say. She loves her husband, she loves assumingly both of her sons and doesn't want to be visibly have to pick sides in that moment. So it's easier for her or safer for her. It's a choice for her to then kind of kind of try and play peacemaker and when that goes bad she's like i don't want to pick sides i'm leaving right and i think that you're right that that is complicity complacency she is being complicit excuse me i think in in that in that as well um peter's dad said when says that we gave you we gave you peter says you guys never give me anything and he's like we gave you your name um we gave you everything we gave you your name um what was your response to that? I hated it. I hated it so much. I hate it when people talk about, you know, their terrible parents, their abusive parents, or manipulative parents, and they're like, but I, at the same time, you know, they took care of me. They made sure, they, you know, they took me to school. They got me educated. They fed me. I'm like, those are basic necessities. They're supposed to do that re- whether or not, uh, you know, regardless of the circumstances, to the best of their ability. But you know, especially with someone as well off as his parents are, I'm like, why you're not supposed to give him credit? You don't get credit just for doing the absolute minimum of what you need to do when you have kids, even in that time. 
And for all that we've said with Pete being the worst up until now, I think we could see that not really. He's not the worst. This is actually him at a relatively functional level, despite his parents and how they treat him, especially differently from his uh, sibling. Uh, and I dislike his father greatly. And I yes, think it's also like too. a really good example of what happens in this sort of toxic masculine uh, scenario where one person who is abused and who is neglected and treated terribly turns that outward into like a um, like a bomb that just shoots shrapnel out in all in every direction. Um, especially after hearing about something that Pete's parents gave to Pete's brother to something mm-hmm. tangible, uh, which would be financial and legal help after he hit a girl on a bike. To hear Pete's dad say, oh, well, we gave you your name as if that's somehow equal to the type of, you know, financial and I assume emotional support that his brother got for doing Mm -hmm. a bad thing that, you know, it hit me pretty deep. I was like, all right, well, that's essentially nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then by the end of the episode, you're like, oh, actually, that is something because if it wasn't for that name, Pete would no longer have a job. Yeah. But, so that even further complicates. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, we learn that the real power comes not from his dad, but from, but from his, his mother mom. and her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's her money. His dad just has a name and it's just used to be old money. But at the same time, he's the one who controls the household. And the wife who ha- is the one who brings the money and power into the family is the one who's just like so retiring and inability, unable to... Uh, take command. I just assume that their dad, is, that his, Pete's dad, is is terrible, even when Pete isn't there. Yeah. So, what do you both think? So, my read about both of Peter's parents, but I guess primarily his father, was that they use money, gifts, financial support as kind of like a manifestation. I don't know if manifestation of their love is is the most appropriate way to put it but like of their approval or a kind of reward for meeting their expectations um pete and his dad kind of go at it about pete's job and what does he do and has that line about if you said there's more to it about the law you know i'd believe it but advertising so do you think that peter is being punished for not following whatever the prescribed path that his parents had for him like career-wise Yeah, I definitely do, especially because when we hear Pete talking to Trudy about Trudy's relationship with her parents, he makes that comment about, oh, are they going to tell us where to put the furniture to? And she's like, oh, they're not like that. But that was his assumption for any any helpful parent would obviously stake a claim to whatever you do with that help. Right. That's his assumption that that's how all parents work. So it definitely stands to reason that when his parents paid for his education, the understanding was in return, he would take up one of however many acceptable professions. And when he didn't, it he's not cut off, but he's not getting special help any longer. Yeah. It, it kind of falls into a sort of classic manifestation of like a narcissistic personality disorder within a family dynamic where you have 
um, especially where there's more than one kid, you have like the golden child and then you have like the black sheep who kind of gets the brunt, who becomes like the scapegoat, the one who gets all the blame, the one who gets all the judgment and everything. And because the golden child is like the extension, both kids are like the extension of the parents. So you have the one who's doing everything he's supposed to. So we're going to shower him with praise and attention and some version of affection and what's supposed to look like love. And then you have the other one, in this case, Pete, who is trying to do his own thing and doesn't always agree with the um, with the the narcissist. So he should be punished for it. And so even though like this is how I'm showing you that I love you, I'm uh, I'm going to do what's right for you, but actually just punitive uh, actions to not doing what makes me look good and what I feel is right. Is Pete a people is Pete a people person? Does he or do you think he just plays? Does he have to play a part or play a role based on like what others expect of him, right? So like related to that is like his with his parents they expect him to be a certain way. It comes with those strings, so he has to ideally act that way if he wants their approval or their support. Um, and he he reacts against um, his in laws when they're they're so like oh yeah we'll support you but are you having a baby like you know the take our money and he's kind of like doesn't want to. So I guess does two questions is first does Pete play the roles that others assign to him and is he a people person <laughs> related to that i think he's more of a people pleaser than a people person or tries to be one it's like um you know because he's never going to get his father's approval so of course he turns to everyone else like don don who's that certain authoritative figure in his life and trying to get him to be all like is am i enough for your love now um, can I get your approval finally? But because he's had these like dysfunctional dynamics growing up, he has no actual idea how to deal with people maybe beyond the surface. Melissa? Yeah, I'm kind of stuck on um, when Pete says, and I got here and you people tell me that I'm a people person and I'd never heard that before. <laughs> I don't quite understand that, but I'm kind of wondering if, because we see that Sterling Cooper gave Pete this job for his connections. I assume that was a big part of it, considering that's why he gets to keep this job. And then they realized that he wasn't necessarily creative. He wasn't, you know, necessarily an intellectual or an artist, as Don says. Um, and so they just said you're a people person that, you know, that's why we're going to keep you here to like schmooze with our, essentially we're going to have you do for us what you would be doing for free. If you were just living with your family and going on vacations with them. So do you think it's him having this realization that his merit isn't, is still yet not his ability and not his, uh, uh what he brings to the table, but what like his name does. I wonder if he actually can make those connections back to his family. But I do think that he's starting to realize that, like, maybe even though he's been told he's a people person, maybe he's truly not that. Because in his meeting with um, the steel man, and I apologize, I forgot his name, when they go to that club, like, he's not really in that conversation, um, after 
they stop talking about advertising. He doesn't really say much else and seems to distance himself from the conversation. But also, I it stuck out to me when Pete and Trudy are looking at their apartment and their potential neighbors come by, and they're excited about Pete's last name. And Trudy says, oh, tell them the story about your cousin so-and-so. And Pete says, oh, you tell it so much better. I'm just assuming Pete doesn't actually know that story because Pete doesn't pay attention to people other than himself. And then you see him step away while everyone else is gathered around laughing and enjoying this story Trudy's telling. Like, I think Trudy is a real people person, and I think that Pete is realizing that he's just not. Or he's naturally not. It doesn't come easily to him the way I think it does to Trudy. Trudy is a very charismatic personality and I think uh, later when we see her family we can see where that comes from kind of uh, that's got to be really disappointing for Pete especially after coming back last week where he realized no one cared that he was actually ma- no one really seemed to care about him that he was married no one thought that he was more valid of a person because he was a married man now and now all this is happening too it's just kind of a one-two punch of like Pete you're kind of just there you're kind of just there. So do you think Peter's kind of is feeling stuck? Like he like he tells like in Don earlier in the episode that he has ideas and ambitions and he independently thought of direct marketing. It turns out it already existed, but he arrived there independently. <laughs> um, like and like he's just like everything's kind of going around him and he's like again, oh you're a people person so we're going to put you in this this role because you you want the name. Um and it's like Life is happening around him, whether it's, you know, him brushing against, you know, what his parents' expectations and having that fight and then leaving or shutting down or the support of, you know, his in-laws and and, and Trudy and how that goes. And, you know, basically, I think a lot of his job is actually what his dad thinks of it is where, like, you know, you're you're taking clients out to dinner. You're you're bringing them dates. Whining and whoring. (laughs) Exactly. So... It, what it made me kind of think back to the first episode and, and the end of pilot when we, the end of the pilot when we were trying to discuss like Pete's choices and Peggy's choices and Peggy letting Pete in and, and why Pete you know after his bachelor party sought out Peggy and I'm I don't I'm still like marinating this this idea or this theory but to date has that seemingly that choice to go see Peggy. I know Peggy makes an active choice to let Pete in, but Pete going there, is is that him making an active choice outside of this kind of stuckness or like frozenness of his of his old money family history, of his assumed kind of new money um charismatic ambitions or or wants or desires of of Trudy and her family, of the, you know, where his, his the natures of his job so was was him going to have the affair with peggy him making an active choice outside of all of this other stuff we're learning about him i don't know maybe maybe i don't know because there's something cliche almost not not almost there's something definitely cliched about sleeping with the secretary right but there is like also a newness to her she doesn't have an impression of him yet, maybe. Although she had a pretty good impression of him in that he was gross. I don't know. 
And I mean, I'm not sure if like at this point, like the show is that like trying to like tie it back and weave those threads. Like, I mean, we'll we'll learn more as as we go. But it's just something that I was I was thinking about um, trying to kind of tie it all back together. How do we feel about Pete turning down his father-in-law's very generous offer at first and why he kind of... uh, and what he said about the reasoning, why he said it was because, you know, at least my my parents' money will be mine eventually. Do we really think that's it? Or do we think there's there are other reasons? I do kind of think Pete was worried about his in-laws exerting control over him after giving him the money. Like, I don't think that he could trust that the money was simply a nice gesture for a new couple that needed help to get their life started like I don't think that he believes that anybody would do something like that without an alternative motive yeah and I think I think too a lot of times when people are in relationships and there's friction it's a lot of times it's ways you were raised or different, you know, lenses or ideologies or different kind of family of origins, whatever that is, worldviews in conflict, right? It's it's manifesting itself in the individuals in the relationship. So I definitely agree that like Peter's okay taking his own family money because he he knows how to push back and he knows how to play the role and he knows what his parents' expectations are and what the strings are, right? Whereas with his in-laws he doesn't know it's an unknown element. Um, and definitely you get kind of how how cold and buttoned down or buttoned up, I should say, how his interaction with his family is and how like warm and conversational the dinner is where they have that same conversation with, with Trudy and her parents. Um, yeah, it's like he's really uncomfortable at that at that dinner. And it I don't know, is it is it because it's okay for your own family to support you, but it's emasculating if, if it fits your wife's family? Is it because, like, you expect because you have this name and you're old money from New Amsterdam um, that, that that's okay and that's what's expected? But to, ha- I, I don't know, maybe. I was definitely wondering if it was emasculating that he was the one unable to bring the money in, even if it was something as simple as asking his parents. Um, but when, as you guys mentioned, how warm and affectionate and, and open and without condition that Trudy's parents are, I was just like, does he also just resent that they are what he wishes his parents are and that he's not getting it from them? Is that why he's just like, no, nope, it's not real. I can't have it. I don't want it. I don't, it's just a, another reminder of what I don't have at home. Um, yeah, I like that. I think so. Or if it's just all of it. Yeah. Because I didn't even think about that, um, that uh, what you were talking about, Melissa, about him assuming there would be conditions attached to it if they if he accepted their money. <sighs> Poor Pete. Complicated boy. <laughs> he is definitely he's probably one of the most like vulnerable characters in the show. And I really hate feeling bad about him. Yeah. Poor Pete. Let's never say that again, Melissa. OK. Okay. Um, <laughs> Poor Pete. Waspy I do just want to point out that you, when you compare Pete and Trudy and their relationships with their family, you can see how a, a truly caring and truly supportive um, relationship with your parents can just blossom you into a confident and 
charismatic person. Like Mm -hmm. when I love when Trudy just, she just doesn't take Pete's shit. He says, you know, like, what about me? Don't you want me to be happy? And she says, what about me? And he doesn't (laughs) want to like swing by their apartment on their way, you know, home from dinner. But she says, oh, hush, it'll just take a second. Like she, in my mind, has always been supported by her family and has always had a positive relationship when she was interested in things and she wanted to pursue things, you know, in my mind, she got to do those things with the support of her family. And now when she wants something, she just says it and she just gets it. (laughs) So do you guys remember Pete Pete Campbell's last day? (laughs) Is it today? (laughs) It, It wasn't that it wasn't. So Don and... And Pete have kind of had an anti- somewhat anti- antagonistic, excuse me, relationship kind of through, well, I guess the three episodes, because Pete's not really in episode two, aside from the postcard. Um, and Pete, Pete makes the pitch for copy with um, Bethlehem Steel at, at, the, at the bar, and then it gets brought up again. Pete, or er, um, <clears throat> both Sal and Don are confused, and... Pete pitches it, they go with it, and Don says to Pete, good work, enjoy it. And I really, my read of that was if it had just stopped there and the meeting had ended there, Don wouldn't have been happy, but probably would have, like, gotten over it. It's when Pete then kind of pushes back where, like, I did something good and you got the compliment, that that's when he gets gets fired and it kind of, the rest of the episode kind of spiral, Pete's parts of the episode kind of spiral from there. Um, I do want to mention Sal has a really cutting comment about the, well, you picked a bad time to buy an apartment, which, like, devastating. And I, yeah. I wonder why Sal, like chose to to needle Pete because at that point it already looks like he's fighting tears but then Pete grabs the box goes back to his office pours a really stiff drink and like sits on his couch and like is visibly like fighting back tears and like steely-eyed fighting back tears like that whomever that is on screen in most cases will like get to me for various reasons so I was curious what you both thought about kind of Pete versus, versus Don in, in this episode and it kind of coming to a head. And then secondly, um, what happens after that kind of climactic moment of the, this is your last day? I, uh, first of all, I had the, I noted down that same uh, burn that Sal gave. I just thought it was like so cold. And I don't know if it was just he's been waiting and hating Pete all this time and just wanting to finally go, fuck off pete so Mm -hmm. this was his chance and it was like the perfect moment uh and occasionally i love sal even though i don't trust him but it's been it's a real journey for don and pete in this episode because when you know trudy's there and don is so nice about pete in front of his wife like he gets that this is important for him to look like the man who is taking care of of business and taking care of his family. And he's way nicer than I would have been uh, to to Pete in front of Trudy. But that moment when Pete just couldn't shut up, uh, like it's a a moment with disloyalty where he kind of goes behind his superior's backs and pitches something that they hadn't agreed on as a group. But 
that he he brings that moment up and he's just like you're getting the credit for my work like it was it it was definitely to stru- uh, a straw a final straw it was just like one moment too far because they all benefit from when don succeeds and granted they do celebrate it and they do give him credit for it but they all are basically you know often riding on his coattails he just he just uh, uh, i know i have a lot of thought feelings and just can't quite put him into words yeah it's hard it is hard to like kind of put my finger on what Pete is doing because yeah I think deep down what Pete wants the most is for Don to see him as an equal but he obviously doesn't understand Don well enough because pushing direct like going behind his back and then getting away with it essentially and then still having to go that extra disrespectful mile yeah. Why, Pete? Like, <laughs> yeah. He just still really wants the credit. He wants to be validated, but he's going about it in just the wrong ways. Yeah. He had the win, but he, like, you're exactly right. He needed the validation. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe it's like the cowardliness about it, maybe, because this whole time Pete's trying to prove himself to be a man. And Don's whole thing is being a man, being, you know, being the masculine guy in charge, being the leader, the steady one. And here's Pete trying so hard. He has like, he's had the worst example of how to be a man. And he's just playing up to what he thinks Don is. And I think he just reflects to Don also, like, probably all his insecurities and the worst parts of himself that he sees more than anyone. Uh, It probably just makes him really vulnerable to all the shit he sees Pete do. Yeah. I do love Roger immediately being like, he did what? Well, fuck him. (laughs) Yep. He's gone. Because there are structures in place. Like, the reason that they all benefit from Don's successes is the reason that there are Don Drapers and there are junior executives in this company. There are structures to the way that these advertising campaigns work that somebody, I assume... Sterling and Cooper have worked out the nuances of. As Roger said, most of the men in this office, I think we could say, or at least the older men, the ones that are executives and the Don Drapers, have served in the military. So they have a distinct understanding of how ranks work and the way that success trickles down. Eventually, Pete could be a Don Draper if he could figure out how to successfully navigate these power structures. Yeah, and like as you say, Don, you know, served, that they were all a unit when they served. And there is that, you know, brotherhood, that camaraderie, even though it's often gross. These guys are all there for each other. And there's Pete just trying to get credit for himself and try to sell himself and it's like, that's not how you do this. I think Don, that is something Don's been trying to tell him from, you know, the first episode where he's just like, no one's going to like you. You can't, you're not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. No one's going to like you because he's just doing everything for himself, whatever the reasons are. Yeah. And I think like, it's interesting in ways that the men of Sterling Cooper believe in structure and believe in system and believe in rules of behavior 
and the ways that they don't, right? Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's the the chain of command, it's the order, it's the structures of how to do the business that that benefit them, and by extension benefit the whole because it benefits the office and trickle down moving and climbing up the corporate ladder but when it comes to other rules that society has like about you know fidelity and, and marriage and relationships and things like that they're not so um restricted or or into those structures right because it doesn't benefit them as as individuals so i think that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. contrast is interesting um and i think there's two scenes after Don fires Peter and while Peter's self-medicating in, a, in his office and then before and after I kind of think are, are worth mentioning where we where like <clears throat> I think it was Annie who said that how Roger's like yeah fuck it like fuck Peter he's not following the rules okay we're, we're gonna fire him so they go into to Bert's office to you know basically tell him what's up and you have three generations. So you have Bert, who obviously is like Roger's father's generation. You have <clears throat> Roger, who's his own generation, you know, probably about 15-ish years old or something like that. Then, um, <clears throat> excuse me, then Don. And you have Don there being the the younger kind of generation, right? So you have three generations there for reasons that Bert goes into about how how the New York works and how old money works and connections and and everything else that every office has a Peter Campbell he's ours he has to stay there and then you have that speech where then Don Roger and Peter are talking where Roger gives a your generation didn't serve speech um talk about chain of command you have the kind of same age differences there and like I think Roger approaches that in a really interesting way where you know, he says that, hey, I wanted you out. Bert wanted you out. Like, he he lies to Pete to kind of strengthen Don's position with Peter, which I thought was mm-hmm. interesting from a leadership standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I guess then maybe we can, can segue into to Don with this and how Don and Roger talk and Don's kind of journey through the episode. But you had three generations in which a meeting where Don was the youngest. He was the the baby in that instance. And he had one where he's he's the person in the middle kind of representing half of each worldview, right? So I thought that was interesting. I loved uh, what Roger did there. Just not only making – probably building up the guilt that Pete felt for, you know, betraying this guy who supposedly stood up for him despite the fact he definitely didn't deserve it. Uh but also indebting him to Don and being grateful for still being there. I thought it was such a smart move. Maybe not. It's super manipulative, but it was so good, especially in the context of like the kind of manipulation that Pete was attempting. It worked really well, I think. You talked about in the notes you have about Don feeling like insecure and is worth the Sterling Cooper, and it was reminiscent to you of of Pete and his father in that earlier conversation. Um, I was wondering if you could like talk about that a bit more as we move to talking about Don. Um, yeah. So, like I mentioned earlier, um, it really hit me the way we learn about Pete's relationship with his own father or yeah, Pete's relationship with his own father compared to Pete's brother's relationship with their father and Mm. the, the differences in the way that the two boys have been, you know, supported into adulthood. So when Don is sitting in, um, 
Cooper's office and he was saying, you know, he basically said, like, yeah, I understand that Pete's more important to this company than I am. It felt to me like Bert Cooper was saying, not exactly, like, that's not what I'm saying. You're both equally important, but I'm going to treat you differently. And Don is hurt by that because he's doing all the right things the way Pete thinks he's doing all the right things, and yet they're not getting the type of care and support that they're looking for from these, like, not that Burt Cooper is a father figure to Don, but, like, in this structure, he is that patriarchal head of the family if you want to see Sterling Cooper as a mob family. Yeah. <laughs> so these two boys are being treated differently, and yet they're supposed to feel the same amount of love and respect from the company, if companies can love and respect us little peons. <laughs> well, as we know, companies are people. Right. <laughs> no, Especially really... their Twitter accounts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really interesting point about that uh, comment Don made about, you know, Pete being more important. Because when I, when I watched that, I wasn't sure if he was being sarcastic or sincere, if, he really, if it was really something that he felt, if he was aware of that hold that Pete's name brought to the company or if he was waiting for Cooper to be all like, listen, no, 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 no. You're obviously more important. Uh, if he was just waiting for his own validation in that moment or if he was just, you know, lashing out in sarcasm. It, it, can it be both though? Because like we talked before about the idea of like the subconscious never being far from from the conscious and the aware and, and dream logic and all that stuff a couple of weeks ago. So like, I do think he is giving it like a sarcastic line reading, like, Hey, come on looking for that validation. But I do think some of it's genuine, whether Don realizes it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think he said it? And then his like internal monologue was like, Oof, too real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. It is interesting though, that like at Pete's not getting any acceptance for who he is just based on the merit of being family and uh he, but he's not really getting acceptance at work for his actual abilities or the things that he does so he's just kind of disliked on both levels which is really sad but i don't like him so i'm not that sad it is sad but he could be better to give people more of an incentive to like him yeah, introspection is not big <laughs> with men in this time period, but especially with Pete Campbell. Right. <laughs> uh, but before I move on, I do want to point out I love Alison Brie in this in this cast in this role. I think one her her quality of voice and the way she talks I think is perfect for the time, and it was around the time that Community was really building up to uh, a cult following. But I think she just like weirdly fits the time period and the kind of character that they were trying to create with her, who's this seemingly mm -hmm. perfect progressive, but not like too progressive sort of character. Just very modern for the 60s, but not like in a scary uh, changing of the times kind of way. Yeah, I really love her. Yeah, it's both representing kind of that older like, sensibility, but you know, and like, five to seven years when um the counterculture movement really kind of gets going she kind of could see some aspects of that and have maybe one foot in it but still very much like closer to kind of her parents generation like almost like a uh 
a Candace Bergen type figure of, of later in the sixties. You can imagine that being, we're having kind of foots in, in two different worlds. Um, She's going to be fine guys. Yeah, Partly because yeah, exactly. her parents <laughs> seem to be amazing. Yeah. Roger tells Don and to stop competing with Pete, not just for work, but competing for the world. Is that, do we think that's like a, a generational conflict thing that like Roger's astute to and, and and addressing or do you think he's just waxing poetic because he is drinking quote-unquote the right way as opposed to the quote wrong way or what do you folks think about his competing for the world don't compete with pete comment everything about roger in that scene just seems so dramatic like (laughs) all theater to me (laughs) like he is advertising drinking to Don in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely was like a scotch dosikis, uh whatever that um, Claire Forlani ad is, scotch kind of like ad where he's just like contemplating things and musing about change. I really liked uh, the thing he said, maybe every generation thinks the next one is the end of it all. I bet there are people in the Bible walking around complaining about kids today. I love that. Yeah, that was really good. It just, well, just being a millennial, Lord knows I've heard from the boomers and the Gen Gen Y about how we're the worst. So it was a very familiar conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Roger continues his um, trajectory of not being quite self-aware or aware or aware anyone of mental health at all because he talks about the don's generation drinking to self-medicate that's my words not his but against his words imaginary wounds which don kind of says like well some of them are real but that just again reminded me of in in ladies room where he talks about therapy being a candy pink stove where it's like yeah yeah that mental health stuff yeah that's not real um but we drink for the right reasons we self-medicate for the right reasons um yeah yeah, ignore the shaking it, hands because I presume yeah. they're talking uh, shell shock and World War yeah. One. Yeah, and that two. was my read as well. Yeah, I mean that was just kind of the thing of getting by. They're like post Depression era people. It's just like we're just kind of getting by. There's no time or luxury to feel feelings and think about them. We're still yeah. trying to like <laughs> we're still trying to work on eating. Don says that thing um, kids say we'll have no one to look up to because they're looking up to us, which is just kind of cheeky and jokey in the context of their conversation. But followed by um, Roger basically convincing Pete that Don single-handedly saved his job. Like, Pete is definitely going to be looking up and, you know, hero-worshipping Don even more than he was before. And... (laughs) Don was joking, but he did basically just say, like, there's nothing here for you to learn from. So Pete and Don, I guess, are just both doomed. (laughs) Seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah, like, none of these conversations between Don and Roger in Don, they're always joking. They seem to be having a good time. And then when you dig into, like, what they're actually saying, it's like, oh, that's... That's dark. <laughs> yeah, and that's it's it's so like coded and dressed up and it just feels very authentic to how within certain structures men are allowed air quotes to 
have those kind of intentional conversations because again it's it's there below the surface but they're not they're not both willing to admit on the surface how intentional and how deep that conversation is they're just like you know sitting out by the fruit stand you know (laughs) throwing barbs at each other right like but there's there's a lot there to dig into so before we move from from Don's arc, I did want to highlight the scene where Don runs into Rachel Mankin in in the hallway because mm. he's he's no longer technically on the account. She didn't move it. Paul Kinsey's now on the yeah. account. Um, I wonder what Don said to transfer that account because it seems kind of out of character for him to just randomly be like, "Oh, I don't want to work on that account that I busted my ass to get back." Yeah. yeah. Part of me just suspects he was just like, listen, I did my thing. We kept, got yeah. the account. I haven't been like super hitting it out of the park with her. I trust Kinsey. Give him a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, like the good leader I- stuff he does every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like the fact that this went over seamlessly for everyone is why it wasn't on screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally totally but i definitely was curious about it (laughs) i do like that moment where you can almost see them falling into that old rhythm that they had from the very beginning and you can just immediately see something switching her and she's just like and she interrupts him and she goes what are you doing and i love it it's so astute because it would be so easy to fall into that trap again it's so easy for so many people because he is charming even though he's so effortlessly charming and they have that chemistry and i know she and i love that she knows the game she knows that especially as this woman in a position um as high as she is she can't be made to feel like a fool like again because the next time it probably won't be as private uh or have as few consequences as it did. Don is, again, honest with her. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. But let's go for lunch. Like, it just, like, that moment of kind of self-awareness that she seems to bring out in Don. Because um, she has, because Rachel has that kind of emotional kind of perceptiveness and, and, and intuition. And it's just, it's, they are interesting together. During this conversation, I just wanted to smack Don because... You are the one who is married. So, and as unfortunate this as this is, like, he is in the position of power in their relationship because he's the man. But also he's the one who's married. So he has doubly, or he has double the responsibility to be the one to not tempt them into this relationship that they both obviously still want. But he continuously pushes her into this and she continuously has to tell him no and I just it makes me so mad like she has already told you how she feels about this like she doesn't want to be a part of your like whatever types of affairs you have going on out here like could you imagine how Rachel would feel if she found out about Midge too Mm -hmm. um but it was just so frustrating to me to see him continue to do this yeah I do like to see the glimmers of um, self-awareness and, uh, you know, just honesty from Don. But at what cost? <laughs> right. No, fair yeah. enough. 
it is really unfair on her because she is the one doing the emotional labor and make and being the responsible one. Uh, and she has double this double the stakes because in the end, people are going to be like, well, you know, it's fine. He's gone back to his family. He's taking care of them. He's just a man. Mm-hmm. It's totally fine. And she's the one, you know, who has to be this, you know, work twice as hard to keep her um, the respect that she gets at work, whatever that is, uh, and maintain the business and everything. And it's so unfair on her. Uh, but you could. It is interesting to see that this is probably the pattern that he's fall, uh, fallen into in the past with Midge, with other women, and just how easily he slips into it, not even realizing it sometimes. Yeah, it just seems like he'll do whatever he can get away with, and it's up to the strength of these women to keep their relationship within appropriate boundaries if they can and if they want to. Yeah, and you say no a few times, and after a while you just stop saying no sometimes it's where the coercive element comes in right yeah it's really ugly yeah especially in this era when it's all you know men you know men are the breadwinners like once you have a baby you don't have to work because you know you trade you you know you trade that for your husband's, you know, care and protection and, you know, the men take care of everything and da 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 but Don's not taking care of Rachel and if they were in a real relationship, he wouldn't be either because he has a real family to give that to. So it's just so unfair. I can't get over it. Like, Don, what do you think? What do you even have to offer her? Yeah. And it does fall into that, that, tri- that old trip of men are dumb. Women are the angels, and that's so imbalanced. And again, as we've said multiple times by now, very unfair. It's unfair to her. It's unfair to him because it doesn't hold him accountable to his own actions. It absolves him practically because he's just a dumb brute who's just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. But we see through his anguish and his moments of contemplation. We saw, you know, that moment where he just was so completely lost last in the previous episode, he's not. He's very complicated, and eventually all these choices that he's making, aware or not, are having an effect on him and how he's living his life. What, if anything, do we think it means the costume choice for Rachel Minkin in the scene to be wearing all black? I kind of thought about that, too. Other than the fact that she looked fabulous. It, it was very her hats her hats are just out of this world exquisite it was very funereal um which you know that's but it's also like widows it is kind of like widow's clothing it's you know pre you know traditionally that's what you wear when you are in mourning especially if you're a widow if you were basically off limits to other men because you're still thinking about your past mm, lost love. Mm-hmm. So it's a big neon sign in black of I'm not available. Yeah, in contrast with the bright colors she normally wears, I know that this term refers to men, but the concept of peacocking. Right. Like mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. used like the last time we saw her, she was dressed in hot pink. And so, you know, not she's definitely she's putting like, out signals. 
Right. Like she I wouldn't say she's like expressly looking for attention, but she wasn't she's not shutting it off right off the bat. I think the black does that, especially because it's such a marked change from how she normally dresses. I think, you know, just on the surface, it would give the vibe of, oh, maybe she's not interested in chit chat today. <laughs> she did not put on her fun pink suit. I kind of did half expect her to go, I'm going to a funeral. Bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a- yours because I just buried you and then just dropped the mic and walked away. Yeah, she yeah. did too. Yeah. She I said, mean, that's- I really don't see a need for that. No. But it, I mean, it is a good, because even we're in an era, and even now people, you know, women have to do this still where they have to just make excuses to get out of a situation with a man that they are not comfortable with or that they need an excuse to get out of. So, I mean, it does. Maybe it was just her actively being a like, look, you may make a bad decision today, girl, but I'm going to give you several outs. Please take them. (laughs) Yeah. Like, imagine the speech she gave herself every time she walked into that building after that night with with Don. Uh-huh. That made me think of, like... Back in college, when you're getting ready with your friends, you could sometimes overhear someone saying, like, I'm not going to shave my legs today because that means <laughs> no one can be allowed to touch them or, like, whatever. That's awesome. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a snappy transition. I think if you want to talk about uh, Dawn and Helen, now would be the good time. I mean, there wasn't much I wanted to cover about it, but I did just because there was a moment of like silence, but not an uncomfortable silence when Don came home. And some of it is just Betty excusing him and his needing to be alone after being a creative genius in the busy, busy Manhattan uh, borough. But I think there's just something there because we saw like some silence between them, comfortable silence between Don and Helen in the previous episode where I think they kind of get each other. Mm-hmm. Like the, I never get any like the same vibes between Don and and Rachel, where there's like sexual chemistry and electricity between them. There's just kind of like a, huh, I recognize something in you kind of thing, and we can just like be here and not have to perform for each other what we're trying to be or what we're trying to achieve in life. But I think Betty picks up that there's something happening, and that just plays into her own insecurities. I think Helen plays into her insecurities a lot in general. Yeah, I can agree with that. And I felt that way when, even before we met Helen and Betty was just so interested in her and like raising those kids and living on her own. And Betty, I think, has always had a fascination with Helen. And at first it was, I think, a fascination with someone who was divorced. (gasps) How? And now it's like Helen is this genuinely interesting person who... I, who, yeah, like, seems to have this, like, you know, chill, casual acceptance of her husband and seems to be really interested in being a part of Betty's life. And, you know, Don comes home and give, Betty and Don, I think, give each other very cute looks in this first scene when Don comes home to Helen sitting on the couch smoking cigarettes. Like, I really liked it. I thought it was very cute. Aww. Uh, <laughs> I did like, um like slash kind of hated how Betty just immediately makes up an excuse for Don's behavior as if she's somehow responsible for it. But also at the same time, she's like, 
he needs some time alone and quiet. And I was like, that is me after work, too. I am currently not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think that, like, uh, before she heard about Helen, that Betty, it, that it occurred to Betty that a woman with a family can just be on her own, not depend on a man, mm-hmm. can have this, like, full rich life outside of making sure everything is perfect and clean and that everyone looks how they're supposed to look. Do you think, uh, how do I want to put this? Do you think Betty wants to be Helen or do you think she's afraid of being Helen? Becoming Helen? I don't really think either at this point. Like I said, I definitely think that Betty has like a certain fascination with Helen. But I think at this point, it's just a deep curiosity about something just so different than what Betty thought was possible. Mm-hmm. Like, I I think that Betty kind of maybe wishes she was more like Helen. Um, you know, we've touched on in other episodes Betty's anxieties and the way that it had never even occurred to her that a woman with a family could uh, be divorced or be, you know, living on her own. I think it's something that is completely foreign to her just from her current experience and maybe her disposition in general that she's like, oh, this is a thing that a woman could be like, could I be independent? Could I be on my own? Could I even function that way? Could I be successful in that way I think it's just something she'd never thought of and I you know I imagine if I had never had any inkling that I could be on my own in this world and then I found out that I could do things completely on my own like yeah that would be intriguing I think that would be a little exciting to learn that that's even a possibility yeah because we learn that um uh I thought I wrote it down somewhere we learned that Betty's actually quite young. So Sally's maybe like, what, six, seven years old. Betty's only 28. Um, and Helen's, yeah. Helen's, what, 32, Glenn says? Something like that? Yeah, and Glenn, yeah. I, think 32, is, 33. Is, I think we learn later Glenn and Sally are the same age, correct, Matt? I thought Glenn was a year or two older, but I don't remember. I don't remember I could, either, I could but... be confusing actor ages with character ages. Yeah, so Betty, if Betty went to college, she got married pretty much at her graduation day yeah Um, so you know she's probably she's never had to be on her own she was probably you know taught all her life you have to be perfect that's how a man's gonna want you because you're only gonna survive with a man so not only is helen there on her own getting by she seems pretty damn happy uh she's pretty content she's just like figuring out what things she's interested in and she's going out there at night without her kids just enjoying it and supporting them um so that's got to be super strange for her uh and i think it comes out in the therapy uh, therapist section and i super get mad every time i see this therapist (laughs) who still does not actually say words to her on screen uh you know she's talking about how she thinks helen must be jealous of her uh and how she feels sorry for those kids especially the son when you're like, no, not really. It's more like, it's almost like Betty's jealous of the life she's purporting to live and she's jealous of Helen almost. Uh, I get super that. I definitely got that. Do you think Betty's idealizing certain aspects of that though? Right? Like, I, like 
Yeah, I do. You know, Helen's life is not easy. She has this husband who is coming over to her house, accosting the neighbors, screaming at the door. Um, You know, her house is not perfect. Her kid's a psychopath. Like... Oh, no, guy. I shouldn't say that. That's we need to talk about Glenn. That might be a little. We're bit definitely of talking about creepy, but Glenn. yeah, we need to talk about creepy Glenn. No, well, um, before we go on to that though, I thought it was actually part of me thought it was kind of an empowering moment for Betty when she said no to Helen's ex husband. That like, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to yeah. let you to my house. Yeah, because. It was like, oh my god, Helen can just not let her husband into her own home, into her home to see his kids. Yeah. That's yeah. a thing. Yeah. It, it was like, I can say no to him too. That is, it, yeah. I, she's just like, nope, bye. And she was admittedly ran scared with her dog that she shouldn't ask for. The one that she's walking by herself that her husband just I'm picked up. Right so hard with. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, my notes are like, of fucking course, <laughs> Betty's walking this dog, and she's having the hardest take time. Care of this dog, but it was amazing. And if you're gonna get stopped on the street by Rando, like I would definitely want a dog with me. Like I thought about how uncomfortable I would be in that scenario because there's a man who's obviously in a heightened state of emotion. Like, you never really know what you're going to get with, like, street men like that. And she's like, I'm going to say no to you. Just anyone unhinged. Right, because I can. And also, because I got my guard dog. Did the dog even bark, though? No. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) it's a thought that counts. (laughs) Yeah, the the dog hasn't bonded with him enough to defend her, but at least, but he doesn't know that. But I did see it a little bit as obviously Don didn't get the dog for Betty, but it's definitely mostly Betty's dog because she's yeah. the one taking care of it. But I think that that dog has become um, a point of maybe not like a symbol, but just a a step for Betty to becoming a more independent and hopefully a less anxious person because now she has this dog that can maybe not really protect her, but I think the feeling would still be there. And now she's being, I don't want to say forced, but like, yeah, now she has to walk around her neighborhood at dusk by herself to walk this dog. And do it. Yeah, and we don't know for sure, but I think that the the Betty from the second episode of this TV show, when we meet her, I think she would have been really uncomfortable with that idea. But, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, she was forced into it, and that's super fucking shitty, but I do think that it's doing good things for her. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like Rachel said in the previous episode, a, go- a dog is basically all a girl needs. Mm-hmm. Um, even, and when you're talking about um, idealizing Helen's existence, even walking in and seeing the mess, I think there was probably, I assume that there was something to be really freeing about it because we've seen already that imperfections and mess and everything being out of place and not working out how they're supposed to be. That's like one of Betty's like anxiety triggers. And she just walks in mm-hmm. and Helen's just like, yeah, it's a mess. Okay, bye. I'm going to leave it. And just go and be okay and not think about it again. And Glenn, go and to bed fine. on time and no more ironing. You're done ironing for today, Glenn. <laughs> Glenn is so weird. What the fuck is up with Glenn, guys? What? I, I just, I wonder, like, I was noodling this this week where it's like, 
we don't know what Glenn's seen or where this behavior is coming from. And it's like, he calls Betty a, you know, said she's pretty and like a princess and then asks for like her lock of hair as like a token. And it's like, is this this weird, like chivalric love thing that he's learned somewhere? Is he like from like TV or, or books or whatnot? Like, is he idealizing it? Like, is this something that he thinks people need to do? Like, is is he being asked to take on a role in the house, like with the the five cents, a, a piece for like ironing, where he's like being like partnerized or adultized, or like being asked to be more of an uh, adult than you know a ten year old necessarily like should be to help share the load in the house? It's like I don't, I just it made me wonder where this behavior is coming from and then i think betty probably makes it worse by like giving him the the token because he he definitely he seems contrite when he gets called on being like the peeping tom in the the bathroom and he's he's crying but then is he just then manipulating though or is like oh i got in trouble so now i'm gonna call her pretty and do this like chivalric love thing i don't know there's a lot going on there and i don't think i have a handle on all of it what do you two think it's hard to imagine him being manipulative, seeing like his mom and that kind of person. But you might be onto something there with like him try, you know, being in this position uh, with his family life and everything, where he's trying to be this hero because you know he's got this dad who is absent, and then when he appears, he's not. He didn't. He didn't give the greatest first impression, is what I'll say. So yeah. maybe he wants. Mm-hmm. He wishes he were the hero who could save his mom from the the bad bad man. And he's just putting it onto Betty, who does look like a beautiful princess. January Jones is a beautiful woman with her blonde hair and blue eyes and everything. Uh, she does look like she looks like Grace Kelly. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, there's part of that, and then his dad. We find out that his dad was. Doing a lot of cheating. Yeah. Is, and so he's probably he probably wasn't the best example of a man or how a man treats women when he yeah. was around. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if it was in this episode or a previous one where I think it was in this episode when they're having the uh, Betty and, and Helen are having the, the post um, ex-husband stop by conversation with Betty where she goes over and they're having the cigarettes when Don comes home but talks about how her ex-husband seems more interested in the kids since they were divorced and she had a really good divorce lawyer and everything else which I thought was Mm -hmm. interesting and how her ex is more angry at her than she is at him at this point so I think you're right Annie I think Glenn's Glenn's responding to that Mm. yeah no we're not shocked (laughs) <laughs> I mean, at least I'm not. I shouldn't speak for anyone else. I'm not. <laughs> no, no, I'm not either. <laughs> so, but I mean, what Helen was describing with her relationship with her husband sounded a bit familiar. Yeah. When Helen says, "Like, oh, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Like, he had all of these events after work, and it was with all ladies. Like, it was all girlfriends." And Betty's like, oh, I didn't mean that. I meant uh, just tonight what happened. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. crying for your life story. Yeah. I mean, she probably wanted to know, but then it was too real. And she's just like, reel it back. Ooh, yeah. In too deep right now. 
Well, yeah, and that, then that's totally that the where you want to know, but you don't want someone to be that direct and open because you're not that direct and open. Or you think you consider it's impolite or, or you know whatever, right? But Helen just is like, yeah, no, I'll tell you. This is what happened. He's a piece of shit, like you know. So. Yeah. And she, I love that she's like, I'm not mad at him. We're just not going to be married anymore. Like, she's okay. Helen's okay, guys. I like that in universe, there is an example of my husband was cheating on me. That is unacceptable. We are now separated, and I have sole custody of our children. Meanwhile, she's supporting JFK. <laughs> Man widely known for his fidelity. I and but to to the election thing, like where and I don't I don't want to necessarily lose sight of it. I I know we've talked about it off off pod before as we were watching the uh, episode and, and whatever and making the notes and stuff, but when Helen goes to say oh, I'm volunteering at Kennedy headquarters, um I, New York is a really important state. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't ask you, blah, 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 because the babysitter canceled. And Betty's like, oh, I don't know who we're voting for. Basically implying that, or not implying, saying that, oh, Don makes these decisions. Even though Don said a couple weeks ago that he doesn't vote. So I'm a little confused there, one. But two, when then Betty goes over and she's like, oh, I've, I watched the news. I've seen Kennedy. Yeah, he is handsome. So it, it's this kind of dichotomy between behavior like Betty's expected to do and follow her husband's lead on and where when because let's face it I don't think Don's home for the six o'clock news where she's choosing to engage in civil society herself and make herself aware even though she feels like she doesn't have a choice I thought Mm -hmm. that was interesting Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that was a very loaded statement and very stark despite the fact it kind of was just dropped in there um and Similarly, because we've talked about, you know, the 60s and what it means in this period of time in the world in Western history. He was kind of a herald of the changing times, JFK. So I think the timing and everything, not just, you know, the fact that obviously this was also just happening at that time. I love that Helen is the kind of person or JFK is the kind of person that Helen would support. No, Uh, go ahead. No, I was just and the the nineteen sixty election is something that's been been present and will continue to be present through this season. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was going to say, Matt, you mentioned about how you think uh, Betty was probably making it worse when she gave creepy Glenn. I probably shouldn't call you that; he's a kid. Uh, when she gave Glenn the lock of hair, I happen to agree. But why do you think Betty? did it why do i think betty did it yeah because like her reaction first very appropriate going that was not a that was bad you shouldn't have done that i'm you know okay i forgive you but like don't do it again and then all that happens like what do you think was happening there so we talked a a a lot last week about the whole night cufflinks and chivalry and how Don views himself versus how Rachel views how he feels Rachel views him and that whole like you know night princess Rapunzel tower thing um he wants Don wants to free Rachel potentially from you know being the lonely girl in the store um I'm wondering if as a result of of Don's 
philandering and, and, and life choices. He's ignoring the woman who is feeling alone and isolated and not emotionally connected and not being as attentive as a partner as she needs. And I am wondering if giving Glenn the, the token of this kind of, and again, I, I do want to like, I do think it is chivalric kind of affection, maybe not, not love. Cause I mean, he's 10 and she's 28, but the, either the power dynamic or the, the attention and like the affirmations. Cause I don't think Betty gets a lot of <coughs> positive affirmations in any of the realms of her life, whether it's in her marriage or like her best friend is Francine for crying out loud. Francine is terrible. Um, mm-hmm. right. So in, in all these realms, it's like Betty is playing a part and I still think she's playing a part with Glenn, but she's getting some kind of positive reinforcement or affirmations where I think that's, neglected elsewhere in her life that would be my read what about what about you folks do you guys think that it wasn't uh on on betty's part do you think that was a healthy move on her part a good move a neutral bad do you think it's 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 her trying to give into that desire to play the princess that she has probably been raised to be i would have preferred her not give a lock of hair to this weird child um i think based on his previous behavior in the bathroom i think we can see that he that the whole thing is kind of inappropriate and then he doesn't understand boundaries um i think that she probably feels maybe some maybe somewhat guilty about having not punished him but having like a negative discussion with him about his behavior when that's not her kid um and then you know the hair on the surface i guess to her seemed innocent enough do you think it would you either of you call it an inappropriate move do you uh, yes yeah I Yeah, I do think it's inappropriate. I think that she should have... I also think it's inappropriate that she didn't tell Helen. Mm. Why do you think she didn't? Because she knows it's wrong. She knows it's a bad idea. It's, and it's just uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, I don't think that Betty's used to having like awkward conversations with people this is this feels like the first time betty's left the house without dawn it is a very complicated situation she i'm sure she's never had to deal with anything with this weight where she actually has some control as the adult um so I do wonder if it's her, you know, taking control of a situation where this kid, you know, in- interfered with her personal space and then she made a choice and now she's not sure about it. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was disappointing, not disappointing, but I mean, it was just kind of a bummer to see her do what I thought was good parenting with him saying like that's a private place you can't come in there and then immediately just playing into these like you said, Matt, inappropriate behaviors. It is kind of interesting to introduce this inappropriate, not necessarily sexual, but inappropriate dynamic between an adult and a child. And it's 
a woman who is in the position of quote unquote authority and of of uh, power. Uh, especially since you know this is the first episode that wasn't written by Wines uh, Weiner. I almost said Weinstein. Sorry, uh, Weiner, mm. and with what we know of um, Weiner's. Beha- uh, his general behavior with his with the people under him is particularly against women. Oh, and have we also mentioned that this? I think we mentioned last week. Glenn is played by his son, which adds a whole other dimension. It's a lot. It's a lot to it's unpack. A lot to take in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it feels like something that we're just gonna have to like commiserate over for a while and try to figure out especially if we see any ramifications down the line uh between betty and helen or just how betty betty uh may approach relationships in general afterwards agreed yes when i did find out uh realize that uh it was written this episode was written by a woman it did kind of make more sense because um the behaviors that Glenn was exhibiting were on the more, uh, the less explicit side of the harassment and, and uh, inappropriateness and, and boundary crossing that some women in, uh, uh, experience with men and men from women and men to men um, in that kind of subtle way where I was like, oh yeah, no, that's someone who, who has seen this repeatedly. I thought that was really yeah. interesting too. Yeah, it's, I, I think kind of, overall you can kind of feel just like a different a different experience kind of being reflected in this episode as it deals with still a lot of you know argue the same the same themes and everything else is the the first three whiner writing i think the first two and i can't remember who wrote the episode three but it was it was another man um but yeah this it's a different a different kind of tone or or way to access some of the the thematic material and stuff um definitely more um subtle almost yeah subtle the right word yeah it's very present but it isn't addressed or as explicit yeah directly well no exactly no and I guess just if if we're comfortable moving kind of towards kind of odds and ends and and closing thoughts and other things that we couldn't necessarily like fit into into the other discussion, I don't want to lose sight of Bert Cooper's office. Um, we talked about earlier why doesn't Bert wear shoes? Well, it's because he has this. Uh, he's very into Japan, it seems, and I has. Ah. It's mm-hmm. I it's I. I need to see more again because I don't quite remember how far it goes down, but I'm feeling it kind of also feels a little bit like cultural appropriation, the office. Like it's Mm -hmm. very much like this is decorated. Oh, you don't take your shoes off because, you know, that's not what, you know, we do. And like, I don't it just felt very like it's I think it's meant to be as kind of an eccentric quirk of the like, you know, Melissa, you mentioned him as like the father figure of the Sterling coup, like family so i think it's it's probably intended mostly as like a um like i said a a funny quirk but also that quirk when in of itself i think is worth mentioning as something that i can totally see happening you know but also maybe not the best thing and it is is somewhat kind of problematic um 
And again, too, I do, and not to give Don too much credit for something, um, but in those, we talked the themes of, like, conflicted feelings about Don. I did appreciate when Helen calls Betty to, to come over and, and babysit so she can, can leave and do the, the volunteering at Kenny, and Betty's like, oh, well... I'll, I guess Don can watch the kids. Yeah, okay, I'll just, let me get supper on the table or dinner on the table and I'll, and I'll come over. And like we talked about earlier, Melissa, when you asked the question about how did that conversation go between Don moving off the, uh, the Mankins department store account, we don't get a scene where Betty says, hey, Don, I'm going to go over. And Don's like, well, I don't want to, quote, babysit the kids because I hate when fathers talk about watching their kids as babysitting because it's mm, no, mm-hmm. it's just being a father. So mm-hmm. I, I did appreciate that we it happened that conversation happened off screen and obviously don didn't have an issue with it at that moment because we didn't see it and it wasn't a a point of contention or or, or conflict so i thought that was rad and i you know before when betty's making dinner don's working on the bethlehem steel account sally and bobby are watching tv and it just you have that there's that shot where it's kind of from the hallway you can see the the framing of the the doorway or archway into the the family room where you see that and like even though sally and bobby don't don't probably realize it and are aware of it at that time that's exactly the moments that they kind of are craving why they get so excited when their dad comes home when it's you know they're still awake is because the ability to like Mm. he's Mm. he's still working so he's not totally present so i don't want to say hey he's dad of the year this episode because that ain't it but just even them watching TV and their dad even physically being there, I think is something to those kids that I thought was worth mentioning. And then, hey, he gets to do their bedtime routine. So maybe he read them the story that night, right? So that's something yeah. that that There's... stood out to me that wasn't shown in the episode. There's definitely something there about the basic, doing the basic minimum of I don't dislike my children being near me. Yeah. How yeah, sad two, is that, that Two quick things seeing Don just like in the in the living room sprawled out casually working while his kids are doing their thing um reminded me of when I was younger my dad was would sporadically study and take tests for um different certifications within the insurance industry and I would put my like little kid size rocking chair next to his Aww. rocking chair and I would like bring my like stack of like picture books out and I would like flip through my books while my dad studied. <laughs> um, there's a photo Ooh. of me and like my book is upside down because I'm like a little kid. I can't read on my own yet. <laughs> so it reminded me of that. And it made me think of... Um, Especially today, when it, a lot of times a family of four with two children, um, one full-time job or one 40-hour-a-week job isn't enough. So it's it's very, um, I guess, relevant or it wouldn't be unheard of to for today to see parents you know, continuing to work when they're at home just because they have to. Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. this isn't the case for Don, but I did think about it when when we saw that. Um, And I loved seeing Betty come home after Don was asleep for once. Yeah. That was probably really interesting Uh, for her, too, actually. 
I hope it felt empowering. I felt empowered on her behalf. Like, oh, now I'm the one with a social life doing activities. You're the one going to bed early. (laughs) Things don't fall apart if I'm not micromanaging everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Don is, for all his flaws, pretty good at, at at least playing the role of a good father. All the surface, you know, I kids pick up on the things that are going on under the surface. But at the same time, you know, he plays with them. And he, when he does, he does feel present with them. And he does cut in a very attractive figure when he does it, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean it's just it's those are the quiet moments where like the the kids feel like we have a good dad and those are all the moments they give us as the viewer I think where we're like Don is not a terrible person he's extraordinarily flawed he has a lot of issues and a ton of baggage but he's this person deep down inside who can do the right thing and does do the right thing on occasion not just cuz he has to I um the cult- I didn't even really pick up on the Japanese thing that much when now that you mentioned it, Matt, but it's probably something I will be keeping an eye out more on too. Uh, I don't remember where in history Japan was uh, in the mid-century, but you know after World War II and everything, uh, or like what twenty years after the fact, and uh, the whole you know Japanese American internment camps are probably in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the past, not necessarily pe- th- something that people have like processed and moved on from, but we're, you know, getting by after and yeah. Japan was probably allowed to um, progress more as a as a independent um, industrial country in the world. Uh, it is interesting to see how things were, how the rest of the, the world was seeing them and even taking from them, but like in the positive way, they're like the good Asians now. Yeah, um, yeah. You you had that that whole period right after the war where Japan was basically like kind of an American colony, and that like so like I can see because of that you had the direct kind of U.S. control, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, of Japan. You had that kind of forced cultural exchange in the in the in like an almost kind of neo colonial sense. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think that's probably playing into part of it. Um, and it's but, probably far enough long that they were you know coming back from it economically because there was that yeah. period where yeah, you know you would sure. find hundreds of families in like the dominican republic i think the dominican republic like accepted so many families afterwards because yeah. the economy was so poor and unable to support them um yeah. in japan yeah. but like this is also the time you had like the rise of uh tiki lounges and everything yeah, yeah. so it's there was a lot of taking from from people being like hey this is cool it's yeah. ours now. Yeah. So I'll keep an eye on that and Bert and his ways. Was no. there anything, was it before we moved to the outros, was there anything else you folks wanted to talk about in kind of the odds and ends, bits and bites that we didn't hit in the rest of the pod? Uh, look at my notes real quick. I think we pretty much hit everything that I was looking at. Mm, sorry, one more thing. I think just going back to the where we find about Pete's family and how they're not quite as rich anymore. Bert has this line about how Pete's grandfather dropped it all and right during the crash in 29. And Bert says, some people just don't have faith in this country, which I thought was interesting. Um, 
but don't don't quite know yeah what he means by that but thought that was worth mentioning all right i don't know well this was an episode guys indeed it was it was and until we have a new episode why don't you all tell us where you can find or where we can find more of you on the internet you can find me on Instagram and occasionally on Twitter at Pop Artery, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. It's a medical pun. Uh, you can also find us on, you can find me on the podcast, The Daily Nightly, K-N-I-G-H-T-L-E-Y, uh, a podcast about Jane Austen. Matt? You can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhue, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. And uh, yeah, uh, you'll get a lot of tweets about everything from Alberta politics to like Star Trek. So sorry, not sorry. And Melissa. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow. That's M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow. And as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast for our most recent episode at the time of this recording is a roundup of... New TV shows we're excited about and trailers we're looking forward to. So you can catch me over there. You can find us together on Twitter at StillGreatPod. And in the meantime, please rate and review us on iTunes so that more people can find the podcast. And tell your friends. Next time. Yep, and tell your friends. And tune in next time when we discuss episode five. Talk to you later, guys. Pete makes $75 a week.